You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to be here with you today. I want to welcome everybody watching online and maybe you're later this week or live right now. Somewhere we're sitting on a beach. We're jealous, but we're still glad you're here with us today. And uh, last week I did that. Somebody sent a picture later on Facebook like, hey, how'd you know? I'm like, meh, meh, meh. anyway, so it's really good to be here with you. We are in our series called Reverse the Curse. But before we do that, I really quick want to honor somebody among us. And so I can't do this very often because we're a big church. We wouldn't have time to do this all the time. But this past week, one of our founding members, there were nine families, 27 people who came over from Chapel Rock Christian Church and planted Kingsway over 40 years ago. And one of our founding members, one of those original 27, uh, passed away this past week, a gentleman by the name of Jim Mast. Now, many of you maybe never met Jim, and I'm sorry for you because you missed out meeting a great man. Uh, He was one of the most unassuming men I've ever met my entire life. Um, He was just really, really kind and gentle and encouraging. In all of my years of talking with Jim, not once did I hear a single negative comment come out of his mouth. After the last service, his son came up to me and just thanked me for even thanking his dad. And um, he said, hey, we found his prayer journal, and you and your wife were listed in there. He was praying for you guys on a regular basis. Just what a good man. So here's what I want to do. Jim is up in heaven worshiping with us today. I'm a little jealous, but he gets to be up there. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just celebrate Jim's life with a clap in a moment. And then after that, we're going to pray a blessing over his family uh, as they continue to grieve the loss of their dad, their grandfather, their husband, whatever it is. So thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Yeah. So let's pray now. Father in heaven, thank you for Jim Mast. Thank you for the man that he was. Thank you that he had the courage to be one of those initial family members who said, you know what, let's just go ahead and pick up our church and move to a new place. We don't even have a pastor yet. We don't know what you're gonna do. And God, it was through that group and through men like Jim and Jim specifically, Father, that we were able to sit here today So Father, thank you. Thank you for good, faithful men like him. The reverb of his life will continue for generations because of the good that he did in the past. And we know that's true, going to everything Darren said today, God, the good we do today will continue on for years to come. Thank you for being a good father like that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, all right, so let's jump in. Uh, I told you last week that I was talking to the men. Ladies, pay attention, because it's all for you. I heard a lot of women say thank you. I felt like you were talking to me. Same will be true this week. I'm talking to the ladies. However, men, listen in. A Christian counselor told me once, the problem with men is if you don't use the illustration specific to them, they think they're off the hook. That explains, ladies, half the problems you have with your husbands. However, men, listen in, all right, because everything I'm saying today, the big arc is for you as well, but I'm gonna address the ladies specifically. So back when I used to do a lot of uh, premarital counseling, I don't get to do that much anymore, and trust me, I'm terrible at it. But when I would, I would often find couples have the same kinds of issues. So couples get together and they want to start a life, right? And they think we're gonna do it right. We're not gonna do it like our friends or like our parents or whatever. We're gonna have this amazing life. And there is something called the honeymoon period. Every married couple knows about it. It's usually bigger than when, the, when you're on vacation, the week right after your wedding. And it can go weeks, it could go months, it could theoretically go years. However, there comes a point where everything comes to an end. And usually it comes to an end because it dawns on her one day, he's literally never going to pick his underwear up off the floor. It's not going to happen. 
And he dawns, you know, it dawns on him at one point, oh my goodness, this woman that I married, she used to be so fun-spirited and free-loving and she just was always encouraging about, go hang out with your friends because I know you're coming home and, and, you know, that kind of thing. And now it's like she wants more from me and he's, you know, somebody's frustrated because the toothpaste is squeezed on the middle instead of the bottom. And, and there's just all these little things that bowl up to the surface. In fact, one of my friends said to me once, Matt, there comes a point in your marriage where you realize this person's never going to change. Well, there's this young couple, and that's their story. And they've been married, and it's been that first year. And the wife's frustration level is growing as she realizes all the time, I just keep doing these dishes. He's never going to help. I keep cleaning the house. He never jumps in. And the more her frustration grows, his begins to grow as well because she's just kind of making these comments. She's changed a little bit. So one night she says to him, I think we need to talk. Well, every husband knows what that is, right? So he says, okay, let's go out to dinner. Now he's thinking, this is great. Finally, we can get the problem on the table and I can fix it. Give me a screw, I'll twist it in. Give me a nail, I'll hammer it in, right? That's perfect. The problem is, man, you have a wrench and she doesn't have any of those things. So you're like, what do I do now? And this couple goes out to dinner and she says, honey, I don't know what's going on. I just don't feel the way I used to. Some of you have thought this before. And he looks at her and says, I know, I've been thinking the same thing. This is great. I think we can fix the problem. Hey, honey, can I just have a few minutes to be totally honest with you? And she kind of sits back and says, um, sure. And he says, I just need a little bit of time to tell you about all your flaws so we can fix them. And she looks at him and says, just remember, those flaws are the very things that made me marry you. Uh, that was a really long way to go for nothing, wasn't it? All right, what I want to jump into today is I want to pick up where we left off last week. Except for this week, we're going to be looking at the marriage of a very unique couple. There's a guy named Abraham. He received a blessing from God. God said, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. And we know now he was talking about Jesus. But he says, Abraham, I'm going to do that. So Abraham passed the blessing to Isaac, and Isaac passed the blessing accidentally to Jacob because he tricked daddy into giving him the blessing. So Jacob deceived his brother Esau and his daddy Isaac and stole the blessing. But then mama said, you better get out of here. Go to this country. Go to my home country. Go to Laban, our relative, and there live for a while. Let Esau calm down before you come home. So Jacob finds himself in a foreign country, and the very first person he runs into, he's tired, he's famished, he's at a well, is this beautiful, breathtaking woman comes up, and she kind of helps him, and he helps her, and they have this conversation. So he goes home with her, and he finds out this is the very family he's looking for. So Laban looks at him and says, why don't you stay with me, your family? And so Jacob stays with Laban. And Jacob, he's a man. He's a hard worker. It appears Laban has no boys. He only has girls. So Jacob shows up, and he's willing to work hard, and this is great. But one day, Laban comes to Jacob. And as I told you last week, when God wanted to reveal something to Jacob, God put a better Jacob in Jacob's life. Laban is a deceiver just like Jacob, except Laban's an even greater deceiver. He's been at the game way longer than Jacob. He knows how to just set things up like in a poker match and then boom, lay down the pocket aces and nobody saw it coming. He knows exactly what to do. So he goes to Jacob and he says, Jacob, Jacob, you've been working for me. You've been working for free and that doesn't seem fair. Tell me what will be your payment for staying with me and working. How can we have a contractual agreement to our relationship? Let's pick up there. Genesis chapter 29, verse 16. 
Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. How would you like to forever be known as beautiful or weak eyes? All right, let's just take a vote, ladies. Exactly. Now, the Hebrew here for weak eyes, almost every translator puts it in these terms. It's pretty close. And the reason they do is because it's a little confusing as to exactly what's going on here. There's two options. One option fulfills both options, and the other option kind of leaves it out. And you're like, what? Well, here we go. So option A simply means there's something wrong with her eyes, literally. She could be have bad vision. She could be mostly blind. She could have a lazy eye. She could have, I don't know, one eye bigger than the other. There could be something wrong, literally, with her eyes. Now, what's really going on in the text is they are doing a contrast. We're starting out the story by finding out the future of these two is not going to go well. In communication terms, we call this a feed forward. They're letting you know things are not going to go well. There's a comparison between these two sisters. One is breathtakingly beautiful, and the other one has something wrong with them. The other option is it's not literally weak on the eyes. That'd be a little interpretation. Something's wrong with her eye. The other one is she's weak on the eyes. Like, mm, she's not real pleasant to look at. That one kind of hurts, though, huh? Because even in our world, we have Rachel's and we have Leah's. And the world we live in judges one is better than the other. And so it sounds like the Bible may be doing the same thing. And I thought the Bible was full of compassion and mercy. But just stick with me here. So if it is the first option, the literal option, she has something wrong with her eyes, it probably would lead to the second option as well. In much of the world today, if you have any kind of disability or something uh, physically wrong with you, you are considered secondary or less than. My friends who are the missionaries in Peru, um, where some of us went earlier and about a month or so ago, um, by the way, I've been dying to say this, I just couldn't find the right place and this isn't it, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Um, when we went to Peru, uh, they literally, the, the people who worked at the orphanage said this was hands down the best group they've ever had. And um, I was like a proud father. I was like, yeah, we can clap for that. Because you guys are amazing. Seriously, it was God in you. I was so proud, so proud of that group. So um, in Peru, my friend's a missionary, and his son has extreme autism. In fact, my friend told me on this trip, I've known that for, uh, for as long as I've known my friend, but he told me on this trip, he said, um, he'll have to live with us for the rest of his life, and most people who have uh, his form of autism, and as extreme as he is, don't live past 35. And my heart breaks for my friend, because I know how much he loves his son. The other side of that is Peru has like no resources for kids with special needs. At least when he was here in America, there were all kinds of classes and help and things to, to tap into, but there is nothing. You see, most of the world views different as a weakness. But in God's eyes, different is only different. So God is always looking at the heart. But it goes into the story Look at verse 18. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, hey, Laban, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Hmm. 
What we're about to find is maybe Jacob loves Rachel. In fact, I believe Jacob does actually love Rachel, but Jacob doesn't just love Rachel. Jacob has a problem, a lust problem. Here's how I know. Part of it is, this is a poker match between one deceiver and another. This is what you would call a dowry. A dowry is where you pay funds to the dad for the honor of marrying his daughter. It happens in various parts of the world today. Except for in this situation, he way overpays. He offers way more than he needs to offer. Now, maybe in his mind, this is safe for him because he's trying to stay away from Esau so he doesn't get killed. Maybe that's what's going through his head. But whatever it is, he offers the extreme amount thinking this is what I need to do. He's got some serious issues. You may be saying, well, I don't see where the lust issue is. Well, just wait a minute. We'll get there. Take a look with me. (laughs) Genesis chapter 29, verse 20. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Really? I mean, this does go to the heart of virtually every woman I've ever met. Virtually every woman I've ever met, who at least the ones who don't want to be single, there are some women I've met who feel called to singlehood, but every woman I've met who feels called to be married says, I just want to be loved. I want to be cherished. I want to be uh, uh, cared for. I want to be known. In fact, every adult woman I've ever met at one point when she was a little girl had the same desire as every other girl I've ever met. And you know what it is? It's to be a, yes, a princess. Only one woman in the room feels the same way. Apparently, I've not met you yet. Every woman I've ever met wants to be a princess. In fact, last night, I put my boys to bed. It's one of the ways I try to serve my wife. I put our boys to bed. My wife's downstairs. She turns on a, a girl movie, and I come down. She's already partway into it. I'm like, that's fine. I turn on a video game. <laughs> and so we're sitting on the couch, kind of both checking out from a long week and a long weekend, and uh, her movie finishes. It's about time to go to bed, and I'm like, hey, let me finish up. Be ready in 15 minutes. Go to bed. And so she starts poking around the internet, and all of a sudden, my wife busts out laughing. I'm like, what are you laughing at? And she turns her phone around, and it's a picture of, I think her name is Kate, is she the current princess over there? A ladies, help me out. Is it Kate? Yes? Okay. Thank you. See? All the guys are like, I don't know. But all the girls are like, oh, yeah, 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 it's Kate. And she shows me a picture, and it's seven hours after Kate just gave birth. And her makeup's done, and her hair is done, and she doesn't look like she sweated at all. She doesn't look like she gained hardly any weight. And then there's pictures of other women who have taken their baby photos from after seven hours and they look very sweaty, and they look exhausted, and their eyes are dark, and their hair is a mess, and they're looking up like, I hate you, why are you taking a picture? And they're like side by side, and my wife is cracking up because we all know one is real, and we don't know how the other one came about, but Photoshop might have played a part. And my wife was looking at this. She's showing me these. She's telling me stories, showing me all these tweets that people posted, and she shows it to me, and like, I'm laughing, but then I look at her and I go, I don't care. Like, I don't get, I don't get why women care. She's like, are you kidding? I said, no, why do you care? She's like, a castle, hello? <laughs> Look at our house. <laughs> and that may not be true. Maybe every woman doesn't really want to be a princess. However, I find virtually everything I know about women comes from either other women or my wife because I've never been there. I think Stacey Eldred says this, and my wife says she's right, so you can see if you agree. <laughs> Stacey Eldred says, we, this is women, desire to possess a beauty that is worth pursuing, worth fighting for, a beauty that is core to who we truly are. We want beauty that can be seen, beauty that can be felt, beauty that affects others. 
a beauty all our own to unveil. So if God made men and women in his image, which is what we learn in the Bible, then when we study men and we certain, find certain common characteristics among men, there's always exceptions to the rule, but if you just take a big blanket picture, most men I know tend to be strong, tend to be courageous. We should then assume if there's a generality in that statement that they come from the heart of their heavenly father. And if most women I know tend to, again, we take the exceptions, it ruins the story for you. I've had some people tell me they're frustrated the way I paint the picture of men and women because it wasn't their picture growing up. And I get that, but it's because you had a broken image. But if we paint with big, broad strokes, women tend to be gentle and compassionate and merciful and really good at serving and helping people. We should assume then that comes from our Heavenly Father. So when women say they have a beauty to unveil, and when we find sometimes as men that we are confused by women because it seems like sometimes, no matter how hard men try, we can't seem to get it right have you ever noticed it's the fact that you're trying, men, that means the most? The fact that you are pursuing, the fact that you are encouraging, the fact that you are building them up, the fact that you are fighting for their heart, the fact that you are trying to connect with them, and if that's true, then how much more so with your heavenly Father? That women, you are to bring into the world relationship. Men by nature, many men are terrible at relationships, I said in our very first service, our 8 a.m., I said, you know, men, if, if we were left to our druthers, would sit around and do, talk about stupid stuff like sports and weather. And then I realized Chuck Lofton was in there. <laughs> yeah, that's what he did. But women, man, they just, they, just, they just have this need to talk, to connect, to bring beauty into the world. But what happens? What happens? When at the core of who you are, women, are this desire for certain things, but no matter how hard you try, you can't find it. In fact, the question I would like to propose is this. How do you actually find satisfaction when your greatest dreams or your greatest desires don't come true? Many women know exactly what I mean. You had these grandiose plans for how marriage was going to go. You always thought maybe he'd grow up or change, but he didn't. You had these grandiose plans for how your family was going to turn out. But with each passing year, it just seems to not add up. You had always imagined that you would have time to get certain things fixed or put together in a certain way, and yet with each passing day or month or year, it just seems to be unfulfilled. See, desire is a part of this world. But when we desire certain things and they don't come through, they just leave us with great frustration, don't they? Take a look. Come back to Genesis with me, if you will. <clears throat> Chapter 29, verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, my time is completed, and I want to make love to her. Well, doesn't every woman feel joyed and, and cherished in that kind of statement? 
See, in that culture, um, they would not have expressed any kind of intimacy uh, together up to this moment. I know in American culture, that seems weird. But in that culture, it would have been natural. So for those seven years, Jacob woke up every day. He went out and worked hard thinking, okay, we have seven or six more years, 364 more days. <laughs> six more years, 363 more days. And on and on it went until he got to year seven. He finally said, yes, I've earned my reward. Now give it to me so I can have what I want. That is dramatically different than being cherished. It's dramatically different than being adored or appreciated or loved. Give me my wife. I've earned her, and I'm ready to sleep with her. And yet, so many women I meet feel that way. So many women I meet, depending on whether you maybe connect more with Leah or connect more with Rachel, often feel like all guys do is look you up and down or won't look you up and down. And see, whatever that desire that's driving you, that thing that you ultimately want, that thing that's pushing you, whatever that is, if it's not in the right place, it's gonna leave you frustrated every time. Not only frustrated, it's gonna leave you worn out and spent. So what happens next is uh, Laban pulls off one of the greatest uh, trickeries hoaxes of all time. See, it was a normal part of the Hebrew wedding. They would take like a week to celebrate. And so the, the way the wedding would be official, like this is now a man and a woman and they are now a, a couple, a husband and a wife, is they would consummate the marriage and that would consummate the wedding or uh, they would consummate the marriage, that would consummate the marriage. I don't know how else to say that. So things were official. Usually what happened early, there was a lot of drinking and partying and celebrating and then the man and the woman would literally disappear in a room and everybody else would kind of party together and then they'd come out the next day and they'd keep partying for another six days. I think that's the way we ought to do wedding celebrations and every father of a daughter in the room went, are you kidding me? But anyway, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing except for what Laban did is he made sure Jacob had plenty to drink then he sent Leah in instead of Rachel with a veil on and they went in and consummated the marriage, woke up the next day and Jacob went, whoa, I thought I was getting beautiful form, not weak eyes. What happened here? And he comes running outside. He's like, Laban, what, 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 what's going on? And Laban goes, oh, I forgot to tell you. See, in our culture, I can't give away the Old, the younger daughter before the older daughter's married. So I had to give you Leah first. Oh, he knew all along. He knew what he was doing. Let me just say real quick, because everything from here on out is the intense pain that comes from Laban's decision to trick Jacob. Listen, listen, if you're watching online, you need to hear this, listen. Anytime you bow down to something that culture tells you is right or wrong, but directly goes against the will of God, you are going to invite intense pain into your life. So what happens next is Laban says to Jacob, all right, here's the deal. Finish out this week with Leah, and uh, I'll give you Rachel also if you promise to work for me another seven years. So sure enough, Jacob finished celebrating with Leah, then started another wedding celebration the next week with Rachel. Jerry Springer would have paid buku dollars for this story. But I want you to get this, because this is the root of what we're talking about today. Uh, a theologian by the name of Derek Kidner says this. <laughs> 
This example is a miniature of our disillusionment experienced from Eden onwards. No matter what your hopes for a project, no matter what you hope for in a marriage, no matter what you hope for in this life, in the morning, it will always be Leah. No matter what you think is Rachel, it will always be Leah. See, when our desires in this world are for something other than heavenly things, no matter what they are, it can be the most honest and pure thing, eventually it leads us to disillusionment. Eventually, we think we're going to get Rachel, but instead we got Leah. Now, I am making no statement about which one is better. The Bible will do that in a moment. The point here is simply that when we desire things that aren't intended to fulfill us, and that's what we chase after when we get it, we often find, like my last pastor used to say, he used to say, Matt, we sometimes get what we want, but then what we want gets us. And what we learn is when we chase after these things, they do not do what we thought they would do. And you've experienced this in your life as so have I in mine. Because no matter how hard we chase those things, they were never intended to be gods to us. So what happens next? Genesis chapter 29, verse 30 says this. So Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. Oh. Heartbreaks for Leah. She's just a pawn in a game. Now, her dad is doing the best that he can. But notice this. Since dad doesn't trust God to take care of her, he's trying to manipulate the situation and control the outcomes. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago. And consequently, she's feeling the weight and the pain of the decision. And that culture because the older should be married first and because whatever's going on with her eyes, he had to find a way to take care of her. The day is gonna come where he's too old. He can't provide for her anymore. He might've had the best of intentions, but by setting it up this way and tricking and deceiving Jacob, he gave his family no chance but to experience intense pain and boy, do they over the coming chapters. So look at what happens next. Genesis chapter 29, verse 31. Do not miss the opening of verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. First of all, did God see her pain? Yeah. Ladies, does God see your pain? See, we often think because God's not acting or not acting right now that God's not active. What we're about to see is that Leah and Rachel go through intense pain in their lives, and the pain is direct, directly related to their desires, what it is they're longing for, what it is they believe they have to have to be satisfied in life. And if they don't get it, they can't be happy. And God is up to something, but their pain is directly related to their redemption. And I might just say to you, ladies, right now, if you're experiencing any kind of relational pain in your family, especially in any way, though, if your desires are going unmet or they keep being frustrated by God, might it be for your good? Take a look. Next verse, 32. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Oh, she just desperately wants to be approved, loved, cared for by her husband. 
And the reason that's important there is because, again, in that culture, kids were a big deal. I know in our culture, many people try to pull away and say, I don't want kids. They're going to mess up my life. But in that culture, you wanted a kid and especially wanted a boy because a boy would raise up. He could help on the, with the animals and with the crops, and he would take care of you in your older age. You would literally be provided for as a mom and as a woman. It was a beautiful thing to have a, any kid, but especially a son. And now she has one. Surely Jacob will care now, but he doesn't. Verse 33, so she conceived again, and she gave birth to a son, and she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. And yet Jacob's affection continued to be turned toward Rachel. I can only fathom the loneliness and the pain of Leah. But some of you know it all too well. No matter how hard you try to look better, try harder, keep the house cleaner, whatever it is, perform more. He's more interested in his job. He's more interested in his sports, his hobbies, his buddies, his drinks, Fill in the blank. And no matter what happens, it's not changing. C.S. Lewis says this, and I think he does, nails this one. He says, most people, if they really learn to look into their own heart, know that they, that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can ever really satisfy. Ladies, and even the gentlemen, I want you to hear me say this. You literally cannot find what you're looking for in the place that you're looking for it, which is why Leah is so frustrated. In fact, if you were to go back through these real quick, Reuben literally means I'm seen. Simeon means I'm heard, and Levi means I'm attached. So if you just walk through those, when she can't get her husband's approval and affection, and finally God opens a room, she goes, yes, now my husband will notice me instead of her but he doesn't. So God opens her womb again. Yes, now maybe, maybe my husband will hear me crying out for his approval and affection, except he doesn't. So that God opens her womb again. So maybe now, maybe now my husband will be attached to me, except it changed nothing. There's a serious melodrama going on here, and it's the battle for Leah's soul. Because what God is trying to get Leah to realize is, Leah, he may not be what you need him to be, but I am. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. I will not fail you. Meanwhile, for Rachel, the story is the same, but it's totally different. Take a look at Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister, so she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. A little bit dramatic. Any 
man who's been with a woman for very long has heard this at some point or another. It just might not be that. It might be something else. At one point, my wife and I were talking about having a fourth child. She said, if you give me a fourth child, you'll die. So, you know, it's like, (laughs) whatever. It wasn't quite that extreme. The point, though, is that Rachel has the same problem Leah has. Do you see it? Leah can't be satisfied until she gets everything Rachel has. Rachel can't be satisfied until she gets everything Leah has. The problem, the problem is not in what it is they want. The problem is they've elevated what they want to the point where they cannot be happy, they cannot be satisfied, they cannot be fulfilled without it. So for you, what is it? Is it a longing for a perfect family, a perfect marriage, a perfect vacation, a perfect job, more money to lose 10 pounds, a new outfit? What is it that's driving you? There's this place I, I like to work out in public, and there's this lady, and I don't, I don't know her from here. I'm making zero judgment statements. I've never seen a ring on her finger. She shows up very early in the morning because when I go in really early, she's there. And the lady is skin and bone. And she works harder than anybody in that place. My heart breaks sometimes when I see her because I think to myself, man, what is driving you? What is it that you're trying so hard to be good enough for? Because I know this. Satisfaction comes when God alone is sufficient to satisfy our deepest desire. Satisfaction comes when God alone is sufficient to satisfy our deepest desire. Take a look at Leah, Genesis 29, verse 35. This is Leah. Leah conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. You know what Judah means? I praise. I'm not seen, I'm not heard, I'm not attached. I give up, I give up. I'm done trying to figure it out and fix him and get him to pay attention to care about me and to love me. Instead, I'm just gonna put to death all of those desires and I'm just going to praise God. And the power of this, ladies and gentlemen, don't miss this for you too, but the power of this is you get to be free from anxiety because you don't have to be in control. God will handle it for you. I want to spend my last few moments trying to bring home this point. Um, I'm afraid in all both services, I haven't done justice yet. So here we go. Revelation chapter 5. We're in Genesis. Now we're going to go to Revelation. We've got the beginning and the end covered. And here's the power of Revelation 5. So John the apostle is, is, is taken up into heaven, and he's given a vision of heaven. And in this vision, it's full of lots of symbols and things that I don't have time to unpack. I did a series on it before. But in this vision, 
he's looking at the throne room of God. God is seated on his throne in heaven, and, and there's power and might and majesty coming out, thunderous voices and, and green bands of light, just this awe-inspiring moment, like overwhelming. And then we find ourselves in so Revelation 5, verse 1, and John writes this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because of what's about to come. But I want you to get the picture. John is in heaven looking at God, and in the presence of God, he is literally shaking in his core. He's already fallen to the ground in worship. It was told to get up. And in this moment, he is truly overwhelmed, and a scroll appears in God's hand, and the scroll is sealed up. Now, the scroll in Revelation would represent the will of God. Who can obey the will of God? Who can subdue and submit all their desires to God and live perfectly for God? And the answer is no one. And John is broken. He falls to his knees and tears are pouring from his face. No one is worthy to open the scroll. What are we going to do? Because here's what John's trying to get to. It's the gospel. The problem is it doesn't matter if you're Leah or if you're Rachel. You're unworthy to open the scroll because your desires are not placed on the heavenly father. And then shows up a hero. Notice what happens next. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Did you catch that? See, if I don't make this make sense, you go home going, I have no idea what the ending was all about. The promise went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah. Who became the great, 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 whatever greats it is, grandmother of the Messiah, not Rachel, Leah. This is so powerful because it wasn't the firstborn son. It was the fourthborn son. It was the son where finally Leah threw in the towel and said, I'm not going to control this anymore. What he does is on him. What I know is I am going to praise the Lord. So whatever comes next, I don't have to be in charge. I'm going to praise my God. And through that attitude, that heart, through that desire, what Leah found is the same thing you and I can find today. And that is all of a sudden we could dream again. We could dream again. Because my dreams aren't placed on earth. I don't have anything holding on earth. That if I get more money, if I get this, if I get that, then I'll be happy. No, 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 no. I'm happy. I'm satisfied. I'm fulfilled. I'm enough. Because my heavenly father looks at me and says, you are important. You are special. And you are mine. And then the power of this is Rachel has hope too. Because John, while looking at a lion, powerful and courageous, all of a sudden he looks up and notice in the very next verse, John says, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
Why is that important? Do you know what Rachel means? It means lamb. Some might even say, you lamb or innocent lamb. So in Jesus, both Leah and Rachel find their hope. In Jesus, both the beautiful and the weak find their story coming together in the power of a lion and in the innocence of a lamb. See, Jesus really is whatever you need him to be. That doesn't mean Jesus changes to become what you want. No, he's what you need him to be. If you need a strong defender like a lion, he's there for you. If you need one who is gentle and merciful like a lamb, he's there for you. And no matter where you are, if you'll rest your desires in him, he's there for you. So what we want to do right now is spend time with our lion and lamb, Jesus. We're going to go into communion. And while we take communion today, I'm just going to ask you to be in his presence. Put out whatever you need to put out before him. If there's a desire that's controlling you, men or women in the room, I don't care. Lay it before him right now. If you need him to be strong, to be your protector and provider, call on him as the Lion of Judah. And if you need him to be merciful and compassionate to you, rest in him as a lamb. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus is the perfect husband. Thank you that Jesus is a perfect father an older brother, our Savior, and our Lord. He is perfectly strong and perfectly merciful always. We could turn to him in our hour of distress and find all of our needs met in him. Oh, great God above. I pray for every woman in this room that they would see their beauty not in earthly things, but in the fact that they are made in your image. I pray that they would be able to rest their anxious hearts in you. God, I pray for the men in this room that through the things we're talking about, I pray that they would be able to, with love and mercy and kindness, treat gently and with great care the women in their lives. Father, we thank you for the way that you lead us faithfully, always and forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray.